When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! You are listening to the Tuesday Club. This is the Arsenal podcast, and I've got Keith Dover with me this afternoon. How are you, Keith? I'm fine, Alan. Keith has been supporting Arsenal since 1887. That's absolutely correct. And one of the first things I was required to do when we moved over from Woolwich Arsenal was to teach uh, Tottenham fans about Christianity. But they have a saying, once a pagan, always a pagan. And... Yeah, I respect that with Spurs fans. You know, they stuck to their beliefs and God love them for it. Well, he wouldn't love them because they're pagans. But... You sure it's pagan and not vegan? Oh, no, definitely pagan. Definitely <laughs> pagan. Yeah, no mistake on that one. And also, with a welcome return to the Tuesday Club. Uh, Oliver Scott is here. How are you, Ollie? Hey. I'm really well, Alan. I'm really well. It's nice to see you both. How you doing? So nice to see you. I'm not too bad, actually. I don't know quite why. I feel... I, I, every day is different in this lockdown hell, isn't it? And some days I feel like it's the end of the world and I'm never going to work <laughs> again and I'm going to have to sort of cash in my chips and work out some budget for, for however long I live. <laughs> and, and sometimes I think, yeah, this is great. The kids are here. We've got a garden. We're, we're the luckiest people on earth. And, I, and I'm yeah. sort of going between the two like a pinball machine. And you, you're in lockdown with your children, aren't you, Oliver? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my two, my two children, and, and I think um, I'm, I'm lucky as well because you know I, I live, don't, I live outside London. Um, I have a garden. I have my children, and, and, and also I'm, I'm very actively working from home. Um, so I'm doing kind of two, three hours of Zoom calls every day. So I don't have the kind of boredom factor that I think a lot of my, my, uh, my friends who aren't um you know aren't actually distracted by work uh which is which is really helpful but yeah i mean uh, to say i have a newfound respect for the teaching profession is uh, is an understatement it's just <laughs> yes. been it's just been diabolical oh my god <laughs> i mean after if i was a teacher by about 20 past nine i'd be going what is it now that's <laughs> but yeah do you think you'll ever go back to work ollie do you think this is do you like this lifestyle working at home um, yeah, I, I really, I really do, and and um, it's obviously quite. I have quite a, a, a lengthy commute, and um, so just just sort of you know saving three hours a day 
Um, not trooping back and forth to London is really, really good. Um, I think, I think like a lot of things, you know, you'll, it's about, I suppose it's going to be about flexibility, isn't it? So, you know, you might not have to go in, but you might not necessarily have to be here. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'll, I'll still go to London and carry on working, but yeah, maybe not, not sort of going up, getting up in the morning, traveling to London and getting there just to send an email. Yeah. Some things might permanently change. Might not. I hope so. And Keith, it's difficult for you and I to do any work, really. We're slightly dependent on having to go to places to work. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing with lockdown, I mean, just slightly changing the subject, it's a bit like, uh, you know, the Bill Murray in, um, you know, Groundhog Day. You go through the initial sort of, hmm, it's lockdown again. And then you think, maybe I should be learning French poetry, ice sculpture and learning a foreign language or yoga, which none of those things I've attempted. <laughs> Well, apart, no, actually, I tried to learn Portuguese. That learned, went about an hour. Uh, yoga, all of 15 minutes, that went. Uh, and uh, then it just resorted to decorating, really. The motivation's hard to find, and it? It's hard to it get is, up the motivation yeah. to do anything. And, uh, yeah. We'll be discussing later on this, and I set, um, rather unfairly, I set uh, Ollie and Keith the task of reading Philippe Auclair's biography of Thierry Henry, uh, which turns out to be a bit over long, slightly heavy going and absolutely devoid of humor and i and i i feel like i've i've tested our friendship really by our, but we would say we will discuss uh Philippe Beauclair's Thierry Henry later on we'll also be discussing the 2005-2006 season which is a momentous season in the history of our of our club of course and uh, and we'll be doing on this day though there isn't a lot of on this day. There's still there is currently talk of football resuming around about June the twentieth. This has been revealed by Danny Ceballos, uh, on loan Spanish twig who plays in midfield with a lot of energy and very little effect. And he's uh, giving an interview in Spain saying it basically giving away what's been happening here that the Arsenal squad have all tested and they're all clean and they're all back in training in their little however they manage it, little groups of isolated individuals, and then they're going to try and resume contact training if they're allowed, and then they're going to look to play a fixture on the 20th of June behind closed doors. Our season ticket credits have been taken off next season, so they've acknowledged that there's a bit of an issue there. Clubs are a bit slow to take the lead on that. But what do you, does it, do, you, do you feel up for a resumption on June the 20th? How do you feel about it? I personally don't. I just, I just feel it's a waste of time. Uh, because what are we going to achieve, really? It's no. I would have just null and voided it, and then just concentrate on starting again in August. That would have been my option. Uh, just work it out from there. Because I don't really don't see there's going to be that much difference. We know Liverpool are going to win the league. That's a given. You're just talking about European and relegation places, and I don't think they're going to change much either. I really don't. I can't see any significant changes in the league tables. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. But I pretty just think tight it's... at the bottom, Keith. It's pretty tight at the bottom. Well, they shouldn't be. That's their fault. Uh, <laughs> I've got no sympathy for them. Well, as you say, now if Arsenal had been in the bottom uh, half of the table and looking at relegation, that might mm. be a different issue because we were that dodgy at one point. Now they're saying we were. We had relegation form. Now they're saying, oh, are people going to be allowed to have people around to their house, watch games at home? It would get twenty-five people around the TV, and the, that's that might be an issue. What if Liverpool are going to win the league and people are bound to want to congregate at Anfield? That's just inevitable so all, all mm. those issues what do you feel about it Ollie do you, are you, are you thinking oh Premier League on the telly or, or <laughs> I don't no? know 
I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think I think the first thing to say is that if it was Tottenham who were going to be winning the uh, winning the Premiership, I'd be I'd be like that Brexit bloke with a big you know loud hanger outside Tottenham <laughs> 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 every day. Null and void. Null and void. Null and void. I mean, you know, Christy, Tottenham I mean, wants to carry on, so everyone dies. <laughs> oh, typical so Tottenham. <laughs> I so wanted that guy to get killed. I just, <laughs> what? I just drove me mad. Because every, every time I was to trying killed? to... Well, every time I wanted to hear that, you know, what they were trying to say, whether it would be on the radio or on the TV... Oh, I such... see, when he's talking over oh, Nora Kunzberg oh. and everyone. It just yeah. drove you mad. You just said, listen, you made your point, shut up, you loony, and go home. <laughs> I think the point was he didn't shut up and go home, and I, I would have been exa- I would have had the same levels of, of, of dedication, to be honest. But um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I think um, it's it's the you know there's obviously so many legal ramifications of you know the what the clubs the clubs will do if if they you know the clubs that are relegated if they if they can argue that it doesn't happen you know if the clubs that were going to come up um, you know there's all this and then there's all the issues around the broadcast money. You know that people have to hand back if they don't finish the season well, that's and play contract. They would so. have to give the money. You probably and they're probably clubs have spent that money already. Knowing them, I bet that money's gone. Well, they so that's why they don't want right? to because the wage yeah. bills are so high, aren't they? So they, yeah. that's what get the players back on the pitch. Is you won't get paid if we don't fulfil these fixtures. It's a slightly difficult problem, isn't there? I know that um, Troy Deeney's been quite vocal about it. That there is an issue mm. about. Black and minority ethnic players being more susceptible to COVID-19. So N'Golo Conte has been excused going back. There's a genuine concern. There seems to be no um, kind of uh, scientific reason that's been pinpointed yet for this. But it it doesn't just fall on socio-economic lines. It seems to be certain races of people are more vulnerable to the virus. It's pretty alarming uh, for the black mm. players in the Premier League, of which there are many. And when Troy mm. Dean is the captain of Watford, you would, as a Watford fan, knowing that they've got three people tested positive and the captain's not going to training, because I'm told he has a child who has respiratory problems. I mean, they're really serious mm. health issues. How, and how could you then relegate them if they have mm. a string of bad results mm. between June and August? Well, and, uh, it seems grotesquely unfair. I was, someone said to me, "Well, it's work. You have to treat it like it's an injury, like you've got a hamstring strain or something." I th- well, I don't think that's true. I think if a player can't mm. play because he's at greater risk, then why aren't you allowed to bring in a loan signing or bring someone else in? Well, your suggestion of not having any relegation and then just promote West Brom and Leeds to me—that must be the obvious choice. Then that's I the way so. forward. That's got to be the way forward. Mm. I think so. so. We no, play no, a couple get, of there's extra a lot races. of support for that view in Norfolk, yeah. and if we want a free holiday in Norfolk, <laughs> I think it's ours for the taking. Um, if they ever open it again, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think they've built a border wall with Suffolk, rather like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, what, what's what's also really interesting about it is, is of course, you know, at the end of the day, they, they are, you know, football players. Even though, you know, it's, it feels very different from this, they are just employees of an employer, and you know, if, if they're being made to work in an environment that they don't feel safe in, then you know, it's the responsibility of their of their employers to to find, um, you know, provisions. That's what's that's happening true. in every other. Employer it is in the end. It, it could in the end just become a labour dispute. It could be just a matter mm. of. Um, withdrawing your labour because the working conditions are unsafe and uh, that's difficult isn't it these people aren't they haven't joined the medical profession they're they're athletes anyway at the moment I haven't heard any ramifications negative ramifications from the Bundesliga 
They seem to get mm. through a round of fixtures. And last no week. fans turned up outside the grounds. So no apparently. fans turned up. Did you watch the Cologne game, Keith? No, I haven't seen any any of it. And we like thought you, you were a Cologne fan. You told me you were a Cologne fan. We were well, on about we're going to support Cologne. We're going to support Cologne. You don't even but... know the score. No, I used to. I used to come. That's a white feather, my friend. You've let the side down now. Well, I tell you why. Because I'm following on from what you were saying last week. The problem is, if it's not the Arsenal, I don't really have any interest in the game. <laughs> well, why and did like you say you said, to me then? I was a Cologne fan before you. Like something well, about Well, I heard that. You know, I definitely, I was definitely on the Cologne bandwagon before you. <laughs> that's for sure. But the question is, like you said. I, like yourself, would shout like a lunatic two minutes into the game, going, come on, throw the ball, kick it out, blah, blah, blah. I can't bother. They show the thing, you know, Dortmund, or I'm not interested. But I'm you'd be really surprised, Keeper, right? Because I watched the Cologne game, or I yeah. tried to, two, and they went exactly. two up early, and, I, and that was, I thought, oh, this is good. I yeah. actually recorded it. Oh, I recorded it. Soul. No. <laughs> Giving myself the opportunity, therefore, after about yeah. 20 minutes when I was thoroughly bored, to start fast-forwarding, yeah. and as I fast-forwarded, <laughs> Cologne threw away a two-goal lead and dropped two points, and I was absolutely <laughs> livid with it. So I felt exactly the same. I thought, this is the beginning of something. Like, this is a seed I must not germinate. I am actually no. annoyed about following a poxy mid-table team that can't keep a two-goal lead. Yeah. And why would I go from one to the other? So I've been saying, anyone, yeah. if you're going to go for a German team just on a whim, just while there's no football at home, just go for Bayern Munich. Be a glory hunter. Who cares? <laughs> Lewandowski is one of the greatest players you'll ever see in your life. Watch them. They're good. They're going to win the league. And then you can have a party on your own in front of your laptop. <laughs> I've always loved Munich and it is a wonderful city. Let's face it. <laughs> I'm all about ah. Bayern. And I never thought I could do that after they beat yeah. us 10-2 and I went to both legs. I went all the way to <laughs> Munich for a 5-1 defeat. And I went. <laughs> I drove. We were skiing in Austria with a family and I hired a van. And on the way round from the hotel, I drove it into a post and knock the wing mirror off my side, and then I had to drive through the rain and the freezing night to Munich, which is a couple of hours' drive, and I couldn't see anything from the, down the right-hand side of the car at all. I had no idea. I'm on the wrong side of the road. I had no idea where anyone was. I went into an underground car park at the Allianz Arena and was 65 minutes getting out of there. 65 minutes! And I could have just left at half-time. Why didn't I just leave it? Why did I even go there? 10-2. 10 10-2. But it's come to this now. Now I support them. <laughs> One by Munich. Exactly. You know what will happen if I support them? I'll turn them on and they'll throw away a two-goal lead. This is, this is what will happen. This is what will happen. They're 3-0 up against Chelsea. They'll play the home leg in some quarantined aircraft hangar somewhere in the North Sea. And Chelsea will bloody turn them over and do them. <laughs> that well, be my luck. Book. Don't support them. And all of my little annoying little Chelsea mates. And, you know, we, we, obviously Tottenham are our enemies, but there's no one more annoying, is there, than the Chelsea fans who've totally forgotten how <laughs> shit they were for decades. What an absolute laughing stock of football they were until they started yeah. buying trophies. <laughs> oh, yeah. which, of course, we would have turned down in an instant. We turned down. <laughs> Don't, you know, it, I was reading. Were you calling me a hypocrite? <laughs> are you accusing me of seeking the moral high ground? Are you accusing me of envy and jealousy? Oh, well, you're absolutely right. Oh, can I just point out? Stoney mentioned it. You know, we're talking about this. 
You know, before, when it was just Barcelona versus Real Madrid or Madrid versus Barcelona, nobody gave a toss about that match until someone rebranded it and started calling it El Clasico. Then every man and his dog started going, oh, yeah, it's going to Covent Garden. There's a wine bar showing El Clasico. I really don't give a toss about the Spanish League or that game. I'd rather watch Norwich and Ipswich or Celtic, Celtic and Rangers where you're guaranteed a decent punch-up. Of course you would. The, the derby we all want back is Sunderland against Newcastle. That's, that's oh, the one yes. all the neutrals want back. Absolute <laughs> El Clasico. <laughs> oh, it's so noncy. I hate it when it's <laughs> people say, El, oh, I'm going to go watch El Clasico. Yes, Oliver. <laughs> I was going to say, talk, talking of uh, talking of Newcastle, Go you've ahead. got a, you've got you've got family in the Durham area, haven't you? Um, you weren't tempted to make a visit during this uh, coronavirus lockdown. Uh, <laughs> no, they were actually um, they are in the northeast, but they're in Northumberland, so they, I don't think any of them would have picked up the virus. You know, referring, of course, to Dominic Cummings, dry, knowing he was infected with COVID nineteen. Driving 260 miles to stay with his parents in Durham, risking infecting everyone in that fine city. Yet to resign, I think. Yet to resign. I don't want to sort of go over old ground, but you know when I listened to the, the podcast, there was there was the great one, the first one, and you mentioned about that prospect of Spurs winning the Champions League. I was in Unstanton, uh, having a weekend break, and I was actually feeling physically ill that weekend. I really was. I went to bed. I knew that Liverpool were winning 1-0. I got up in the morning. I didn't want to even look at my phone. And I was just thinking, oh, no, I bet they're going to win 2-1. They've pulled it back. I just didn't want to look. Because I said to Linda, I said, if you think I'm going to another Seder night with your Spurs supporting cousins, you can forget it. If they've won the Champions League, there's a good prospect I'm moving to Finland. That's it. I'm <laughs> off. I'm never, I, I'm never going to go to any of social functions with your family because they're all deluded. They always, But it'll be the worst case scenario. And she said, don't worry, Liverpool won too. And I went, thank God for that. I've never loved the Scousers so much. <laughs> Because I really thought I'm going to have to move away and that's it. Because there's one thing about Linda's Tottenham supporting family. that every I never go in there. I never boast about our achievements. The first thing I get, oh, we built a bigger round than you. We're on the way up. Pochettino, we love him. He's white and blue all the way through. That soon ended, didn't it, after a bad run? He's available again now. Is he? Mm. Pochettino, ah, he's on the market. Do you, do you think yeah. he'll go to a Premier League club? I expect Newcastle Premier League Cup. Newcastle, yes, Ollie. I think I've heard a similar thing because of a uh, backing that they've got in a takeover. Oh, those charming, wow. charming people in from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Turn a blind eye, sometimes literally, to <laughs> <laughs> their human rights record. Yeah, yeah. Well, you could say, yeah, you'd need a, to get a season ticket, an arm and a leg. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we calling them the magpies? It'll be the stumpies. It, it might well be. Well, that reminds me, actually, we like to do, uh, listener, on this podcast, so we might as well do it now. We do a feature called On This Day, because there's no actual football to talk about, as you probably noticed. But we, so we like to do On This Day, and we're recording this on uh, May the 23rd, and uh, there isn't really much in the history of Arsenal on this day. No really memorable fixtures have turned up. 
So I started uh, looking around. I did notice that on this day for AC Milan, uh, on this day, May the 23rd, 1968, they won the Cup Winners' Cup. 1990, they won the European Cup. And 2007, they won the Champions League. So that that maybe wince a little bit at quite what a massive club they are. But the, my favourite thing that happened on this day was in 1883, there was a baseball game taking place between one-armed and one-legged players in Philadelphia. <laughs> That one Start team all had one leg and the other team all had one arm. Uh, and But the thing about it that's most extraordinary, uh, the, the hoppers who were going around on crutches um, got stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out two legs more important in baseball than two arms. You can throw it and hit it with one arm, it turns out. They got stuffed 33-17. But the thing about this game is they were all railroad workers and they'd all lost limbs building the railroads. Oh. Which slightly puts uh, things into perspective when you think about workplace health and safety. (laughs) Uh, The most significant thing, though, I I digress, uh, I could find was uh, on this day in 2006... May the 23rd, we signed Thomas Rosicki uh, um, mm. from uh, Borussia Dortmund, the, uh, the little Mozart, the magician, who was a wonderful talent, responsible for one of the best goals that we've ever seen, uh, at, certainly at the Emirates, uh, against Sunderland. And I just wondered, Keith, have you got any memories of Rosicki? I mean, what's... Uh... Oh, mate, uh, yes, and I, I love the man because it, I just like... He had that wasted look of a 70s rock star. There was something about him. and <laughs> But the guy... No, I tell you the goal. Do you remember what it was? It, was it Danny Rose, the Tottenham player? He fell over and then Rizicki, It was in the FA Cup. And he just ran through, he collected the ball and then he still had a bit of work to do and he chipped the keeper. That was lovely. That was, to me, it's just fantastic. Rose. Didn't need that touch. He's had his pocket picked by Thomas Rosicki. It's Walker who's back at him, but Rosicki's done the rest. Arsenal with one big foot in the fourth round. He had a knack of scoring against Tottenham, and you could really see the delight on his face when he did. And that's it. And when you see that, you know it matters. And he's also one of these players who, if you notice, when he's on the substitutes bench and we scored, he goes to the You see some players there looking at their phone, but no, Thomas would be jumping up and celebrating the goal. Mm. And that's, made that's that a, up, players no. looking at their phone when oh, we score. They do, just they made do. That Trust me, they do. They <laughs> do. They are some strange folk around. And <laughs> No, I hate that. I hate it when they just go, they can't even be arsed. They look up, oh, we scored it. Oh, never mind. You know. Oh. <laughs> Oli Rosicki yeah. overlap with your time as a season ticket holder. Very much so, yeah, very much so. And I, I think I think what I what I kind of remember if I if I picture him playing was just you know when he when he'd get the ball you know he'd get the ball from the back or from the side and he just would you he just you'd look at him and he was just like ready to spring forward you know he was always looking like to run with the ball to pass it forward you know so unlike like the crab like tendencies of of some of our our other players he just seemed like he was like a super positive. Mm. Player just oh, about circulating it quickly or running right. with it, looking at it. A very and dynamic, the... forward thinking, a very kind of Wenger kind of player, really, wasn't he? And when they had mm. him and Fabregas and Hleb in that mm. midfield in 2008, I think the great tragedy of Rosicki's career was the, the amount of time he spent injured. I and think he was, he was almost yeah. out for a year, wasn't he? I he think, was wasn't constantly he? Yeah, yeah. out. And, uh, yeah. and we knew that for some of it, because of course he, he led a 
double life as a lesbian country and western singer and we knew that some of it he was <laughs> That's going to take its toll. spending in Nashville but I think quite a lot of the time he was genuinely injured and I know in January 2008 he got an injury that caused him to miss the rest of that season and I still mm. feel that if he'd played that whole season we might well have won the league that year he had a fantastic relationship they were really good mates actually weren't they um, Flamini who left at the end of that season and, and Sesk and Thomas Rosicki, all wonderful talent. Of course, it did mean more game time for Diaby, who was another player who, who suffered with a lot with injury. He scored a screaming goal, Rosicki. I don't know if you remember his first goal was it was it, quite in his first season was against Hamburg away. He absolutely smashed it in. Mm. He did slightly think he could he could have. Had there was a game a also in the FA Cup 2014. We was against we was a Brighton away, and Brighton were a tricky team to play away, and we we still don't get great results against them. But he he scored in that match and he totally bossed it. He was absolutely unbelievable. And it's like, you know, you see, you shouldn't say one player single-handedly won that match. Well, I think he did that day because he just controlled everything and he scored a fantastic goal. And, you know, I, no, I just, he was a great player and he's a legend at the club. He'll always be remembered, you know. He was greatly loved mm. by the fans, wasn't mm. he? just had a way about him that was very likeable and I felt there's a lot of sympathy for him for his injury trouble because mm. a lot of the time... He's in the first team coming back from injury. It's difficult to get get your form or find your form. But when he clicked, he was sensational. I remember actually, I remember a goal he scored at Highbury for Dortmund when he dribbled through about three or four players. And I can't remember if there were any one-twos or how he got through, but he, was, he, was, he just kind of scampered through and smashed it in. Fantastic close control. And a big, a legend of Czech football. I mean, a, mm. oh yeah buckets of international caps and always turned up for them so yeah on this day uh, we signed Thomas Rosicki and he is fondly remembered oh very much so gentlemen I've got a bulging mailbag, as, as uh, you well know. Oh, 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 you, that's disgusting. Oh, you know, speak for yourself, Ducky, you know. Uh, uh, I can't remember which of these I, I read... Um, Last week, in which I didn't, uh, someone's br- brought back memories of the uh, Abu Dhabi song. Uh, oh, so, it was uh, last last week's episode was some very good songs, wasn't it? He knocked out John Terry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Lawrence Pugh says, "Why did you bring back the Tuesday Club? I listened since around 2011. It was always brilliant to listen to. Talk about the Arsenal. Um, why has been such a big gap? And you brought it back." Was it my tweet that got this show back on the road? Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> it was absolutely nothing to do uh, with you, Lawrence. I can send you screen grabs of the tweets should you need. No need for that <laughs> at all. Uh, we just... Uh, Silent Chris used to be our producer and we used to record in his house and having a full-time job and two children and Amy is... Uh, his wife also working full time. He couldn't have us going around there anymore with a case of wine and a terrible no. <clears throat> attitude. <laughs> yeah. uh, we were making his life a misery, and uh, and we gradually it became harder and harder to get everyone together. But now we can we, we can we can record online. Jay's taken on the uh, mantle, and uh, I think we're going to be here for you know forever. Yeah. Mm. Um, until until Jay gets signed up by Barcelona, he'll be headhunted, don't you? He might be headhunted by a rival yeah. podcast. It's something yeah. we always have to bear in mind. <laughs> have we got uh, him under course. contract? 
when the football when the football starts again, we might go off the whole thing and stop. But it's actually... <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me know. There was another one. Someone had quite a good. Oh, someone had a David Platt anecdote about one of the uh, women who worked at the club called Peggy called him to see you next Tuesday in front of all the other players. Oh, <laughs> wonder why. Uh, yeah, yeah, apparently yeah. it just wasn't well, well liked. Uh, as content is hard to come by during lockdown, this is from John Crouch. No offence, as the thong story was podcast gold. Why don't you <laughs> partake in the Merce Boldy rule of one pint every 12 minutes? You're half cut in most of them. Why not go the whole hog? That's very rude, John. No. We're sitting here in the middle of the day. I'm drinking mm. coffee out of a thermos flask. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly them. true to say that there was a period where where we were. There, there, was a, there was a definite. There was a definite. I think last time Keith, you and I did this together. We went. We were sitting outside that um, that Weatherspoons pub in the converted. You know the converted cinema on Holloway Road. Ah oh, yes, I know the one you. We mean. had a couple of libations before heading over to to. to Big mistake. Yes, we did think. <laughs> we thought it'd be uh, like a Derek and Clive inspirational thing to do. <laughs> And it wasn't, was it? It was sadly no, no, it was not. just sounded like old men in a park rambling away, <laughs> shouting at pigeons. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, Which are, in some ways, that's what we're, that's what we're like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Adam Gosiski uh, has written a Spurs song to the tune of Agadu. Agadu, do, do. Are you a deluded Spurs fan too? Full of hate, full of spy, in bed, thinking of the Arsenal all night. Listen, this doesn't scan in any way at all. Bale left Modric too, after a bigger club in Spain than you. In that time, we won a cup and we did it with Giroud. I mean, you're living in the past, my friend. It doesn't scan and you're living in the past. Never email me again. Autograph story from Ted Carolan involving the scum. I once went to the effort to get Tom Huddleston and Michael Dawson, who had recently been spotted in Café Rouge in Loughton, where I grew up, <laughs> to sign a picture of Sol Campbell holding the Premier League trophy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done, well done. <laughs> we were on a school lunch break and I ran back to print the picture. I remember Tom Huddleston clocking immediately while it took Michael Dawson a second or two more to realise he wasn't going to sign it. <laughs> oh, no sense Unrelated, you, but I also once saw Kyle Walker in Subway with his mum, and I kid you not, she ordered his sandwich for him. Rest <laughs> <laughs> assured, I will never email you again, Teddy. Very good oh, stories, Teddy. Yeah, I do email us again. Email yeah, no, again, email please. Teddy, please do. That was a good one. I like I that. If you've got another another one, uh, Matthew Allen uh, suggests Martinelli on the left hand side. <laughs> Martinelli on the left hand side. Get stuck after that. Um, <laughs> What was the Abama Yang last, the one last week? Oh, we've Abama. got a new Abama Yang this week. That was uh, good. It's on the oh. tune of I'm Coming Out by Diana Ross. Oh, Abama Yang, I want the world to know he scores all the goals. Safe to say this didn't take off. Cheers, no. Robbie. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, last year it was Obama Yang. <laughs> we I, got, I don't think, we I don't think there's it? any chance of us singing those songs anyway. Uh, we'll be no. off the end before we go back to football. So. Leo Maguire has emailed me to tell me that um, Tony Pulis has appeared on the Peter Crouch's podcast and has pr basically 
confess by in a way by by not denying it that he was in the nude when he headbutted James Beattie. And so no, we, in the jacuzzi. In an episode, I think I think we've got an episode on. The, if you go onto Audio Boom or wherever you get your podcast, you can. You, we've all our old podcasts are on there, and there is one on there somewhere. I think it's called Tony Pulis's Penis Cap. Um, it is, yeah. We talk yeah. at length about the. He's uh, one of those. Yeah. Nice. I, I, I think I mentioned it on that particular podcast. Every time you see Tony Pulis, I see him with a baseball cap sitting outside his house, string vest, mattress, loads of cans of beer <laughs> on one side, an old cortina on bricks, him throwing <laughs> things at people. I just, it's just something horrible about him. I mean, I'm, I'm he's sure. Going, he... He's going on about Wenger again this week. Oh, because he hates him. He's talking he about Wenger really... again. He's obsessed, obsessed with Wenger. And what was he? <laughs> was apparently, he... that's something to do with um, we didn't like long throws of, and and our goalkeeper being beaten up. And, but I don't know. Oh, when he said we played rugby, that was we loved that. They were, no, you didn't, you liar. You were really wounded and upset, and you're still going on about it ten years later. I remember a game. What was it? A Boxing Day match. We was playing West Brom, and it was the most boring, nil-nil, tedious football. And I don't know how, how people employ him. And then you have these pundits who say, "Well, he has to work with what he's got," and you know they're scrapping around for points. Yeah, but you do have a duty to entertain. It's football. It's Christmas, for Christ's sake, you know. Cheer people up. But no, time-wasting from the moment it kicked off, which yeah. I've never understood. I hate that. You know, you're 1-0 up, two minutes to go. Yeah, you take it into the corner flag. That I understand. But not from the moment that the referee blows the whistle to start the game. We you normally know. stuff oh. them at home, though, don't we? Yeah, yeah. but oh, anyway, terrible manager. Still... I hate him. It, it, when when a, a win over Arsenal is still your career highlight, and this says something. <laughs> Leah Brown has emailed. She got a couple of autograph stories. The first was in 1998. We won the double. I'm from Sheffield. I was 13 at the time. My friend Stab was a policeman, and he knew which hotel the team was staying in, so he gave me the address. <laughs> Hell. <laughs> my dad took me. <laughs> get yourself down there, Leah. I'm only 13. Go on, get yourself down there. All the footballers are there. I bet it was like a scene out of aeroplane. I bet Al Qaeda suspects were going up to him. Excuse me, I want an autograph. Yeah, that hotel over there. In fact, there you go. It's a security pass. It walks straight through, mate. My dad took me, thank God. And when we arrived, Emmanuel Petit was sat reading a French newspaper. And, sorry, Tayo, Vivas was with him. And we got their autographs. And Petit helped my friend with her camera. Oh. Oh, the team then boy. started coming down the stairs. Bergkamp and Overmars came down together. I was slightly taller than Overmars, just saying. Vieira <laughs> stopped for photos and I got my shirt signed by the whole team, apart from Parler, who refused to sign and got straight on the oh, bus. Right. That Let is literally now. the first bad word I've ever heard about Ray Parler in my yeah. life. Yeah, mm. well, maybe. Anyway, it's refreshing. He said, well, you know, <laughs> may have had things on his mind, but the rest of the team stepped up and that was lovely. That's a good story. Then they went to, she went to the Sheffield Wednesday game and uh, she saw Paolo Di Canio push over Paul Alcock. So it was a good day, mm -hmm. despite the result. Uh, the downside was all the photos I had with the team were lost as our house got burgled and someone nicked the camera. Oh, no. That's awful. <laughs> oh oh no. dear! Shouldn't have put that bit in. <laughs> the second one story she has. She's got another story here. Uh, Robert Pires pushed me off a cliff. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> 
I went to watch one of the games at the Emirates on a screening and Perez was there doing a Q&A. I went to the front and I'm not going to lie, I elbowed a few kids out of the way to get into some of my shirt. <laughs> my reasoning when telling this story, they were young. They never saw him. I did. Oh, However, okay. not going to lie, he was like, yes, of course, in his French accent. As a woman, I melted. <laughs> I went back to my brother where we were sitting and he asked, so did you get a photo as well? I didn't. I was too bewitched by him. My brother's words were, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll tell you. She, she's fantastic, this woman. Uh, and then she sent a photograph of her. Uh, Robert Perez, autograph shirt. Thank you, Leo. We, we like yeah. uh, we like oh. an autograph story. We like any story where, where you've seen a player out and about. We like any autograph story and uh, and uh, do uh, keep them keep them coming. Oh, Keith, there's one for you here mm -hmm. uh, for Joe Burns. Love the pod, even as a Liverpool supporter. They're loving everything at the moment. Liverpool mm -hmm. supporters, apart from lockdown, they're <laughs> really getting a bit impatient. I imagine. Um, so glad it is back, although the mention of Jimmy Carter made me shudder. Mm. Two quick questions for Keith. Has he found any more women's handbags while getting his daily exercise? No. And has there been any more swift Polish justice administered? <laughs> ah, yes, ah, yes. It's <laughs> um, uh, uh, good, good to hear some of those stories have been kept alive. No to both of them. Why, you, there was a little bit of... Well, justice that went wrong. You know, when you think a baseball bat is a game changer, it isn't. <laughs> no. I'm not sure if it is in your line of work, Ollie, but it doesn't come very handy in stand up comedy. <laughs> Go on, Keith. Did you make your own baseball bat with a piece of timber? No, it was, no, it was my own baseball bat. Um, what happened was, oh, there's this music playing. I hadn't slept for about three nights, and these. Across the road, this when, house. When, when was set the scene? When was this? This is about two. It was yeah, two years ago. And you were in possession of a baseball bat. Yes, I still have. But mind you, Linda's locked it away because she don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> so, get a baseball bat? Uh, why did why did I buy Did you one? get it to use as a weapon? Yes. <laughs> of course wow. it did. Yeah, yeah. Well, not a cricket bat. No, not a cricket baseball. bat. Baseball bat. I think I think it was more you know sturdy. Hit him on the head, hit him on the head, hit him so, on the head with the baseball bat. Anyway, there was the, these miscreants outside. So I, I went up behind and had this baseball bat, like you do in EastEnders. And soon as, what happens is, on TV, you show them the baseball bat and they get scared and back down. Oh, no, they didn't do that. They they bring out knives, don't they? So Did they? Well, <laughs> You well, threatened two lads with well, a baseball bat and they... They were going to stab you. Well, they was. They but were you're glad you went outside. Well, they threatened, and then their girlfriends. Anyway, Linda calmed it all down. I went back. So you know, the baseball bat was not effective under any circumstances. But luckily, my neighbour up the road, a Iranian guy called Yadi, who's absolutely one of the best. They, they Iranian. Came, uh, uh, Iranian. Is he from Uranus? <laughs> no, Iran. <laughs> oh, Iran. Iranian. Iranian, yeah. Iran, it's Iranian. Iranian. I thought you meant to say Ukrainian. No, Iranian. no. Oh, Iranian. Right. You've got an Iranian fella down the road. Yeah, right? oh, he's, oh, he's the best. But anyway, so these miscreants came back, but they knocked on the wrong door, didn't they? They knocked on his door and he's come out and they shat themselves, <laughs> apparently. So uh, luckily... Why were, they knock why were they knocking on doors? Well, they wanted to come back and get me. That, that was, yeah, yeah. 
Because so what, what were they doing in the road? They were keeping you up all night playing music outside your front door? I said to them, listen, Friday night, Saturday night, you can play as long as you like. I said, it's Wednesday, I ain't slept in three days, mate, and it's three o'clock in the morning, and usually like I'm making a racket. Now, shut up. Uh, which were they neighbours or were they in a vehicle? No, so, they yeah. were in uh, this uh, rented accommodation a few few doors up, which sat, thankfully oh. they've all left now. We've got a nice Chinese family in there and they're as good as gold. You know, but they, this is English <laughs> riffraff we're talking about, so, you know. English, yeah. Always, every time, isn't it? But, as I say, as a game-changer, the baseball bat does not work, my friend. No, you, that's not a tactic I would d- deploy. Well, not yeah, when you're five yeah. foot six. You're, you've got to be, like, you know, one of the Mitchell brothers for it to carry it off. It was an <laughs> abject failure. Well, speaking of violence, um, Joe Burns, who uh, sent us this email about Swift Polish Justice... Yeah. He said, uh, remembering Tony Adams' comment that to be a good team, you need seven, Mm. uh, which means seven blokes who are prepared (laughs) to have a ruck. Yeah. Uh, Who would be in your all-stars 1970s or 80s tunnel crew against the Liverpool line-up of Sooness, Smith, Hughes, Jimmy Case, (laughs) Terry McDermott, Bruce Grobelar, Mm. And Paul Walsh, he says. And then he says, remember really? him and Kevin Bond in 1987? And I'm afraid I do not, Joe. Mm. I do not. If I could add a current player as a reserve, I'd have Andy Robertson. I don't think you should have Andy Robertson. I think you should have Virgil van Dijk. Mm. Uh, thanks for making lockdown easier. Uh, Alan's suggesting that Liverpool should be presented with a three-quarter size trophy or a gold asterisk. It's quite funny, actually. Mm-hmm. But a scenario I would gladly accept, as we have played some great football and are worthy champions. Yeah, you can't argue with that. Uh, <laughs> no, I would put in Peter Story. Yes, definitely Peter Story. Uh, I think, and maybe Sammy Nelson. Right. Uh, okay. Perhaps, uh, perhaps we'd send Willie Young in. I don't know. Who? I don't. I don't. Who would you send in against? I suppose really, you want to be sending in most of our lads from the Old Trafford brawl of '91. But he wants a 1780s uh, kind of. UFC lineup who could mm. take on Jimmy Case. I can't be asked for this one, Joseph. Sorry. You, we'll, we'll work on that one. I think we could. Yeah, have a go, fix. We'll have a good remember think. Anyone. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. we're only going to come up with all the old cliched names that everyone else will think of, yeah. like Chopper Harrison. What a name Mickey to Troy. Chopper. Mickey Harrison. Troy. Who's that other animal? He's Terry Herlock. Yes. <laughs> Oh, well, Vinnie Jones springs to mind. There's another Vinnie thug. Jones. Oh, yeah. Have you yeah. been watching uh, Harry Redknapp's Euro? I Heroes haven't. Is it, is it is it any good? Someone recommended it to me, but I'll take his opinion with a pinch of salt. So. Oh no. Well, my uh, yeah, I recommended to me, and um, what did you it think? It's actually quite good because I mean, they're all massively overweight. Mm-hmm. Um, but you. The, Razor Ruddock's 25 stone. He's about to have a pacemaker fitted and mm. Merson has a kind of intervention on him because he's just drinking like a fish and not paying any attention. He's only 51. He's mm. Really? And then Lee Hendry came on and uh, told us, told him that he tried to kill himself twice with depression. And Merson's had three wives and has had alcohol and gambling problems. Seaman's on to his third wife and... And they, they, you're just going from one to another of these sort of car crash mm. lives where they they lead this sort of very odd existence to where they're everything's done for them, right? And they they can behave like children. Someone always cleans up behind them. There's no social media. There's a real kind of macho drinking culture, and and 
concealing evidently a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, and in some cases some quite serious mental health issues, particularly with depression. Mm. And suddenly they're now they're all middle-aged, and Hendry's 43, a lot of these lads now are in their 50s, and they're all opening up. So then they have an odd set. They bring Vinnie Jones in as a ringer because everyone turns up, they have one training session, they all pull a muscle and they're injured. So they have to bring in a load of ringers. And they, uh, Harry Radnap says, I'm going to sit Vinnie down with Merce and have a chat with Lee Hendry. Maybe they could help him. So this is, this is Lee Hendry's counselling session. It's with Merson and, and Vinnie Jones, which they do over a clay pigeon shooting session somewhere in... Somewhere in I don't remember where they were. It's <clears throat> and it's actually really good TV. You mm. find yourself seeing people in a different light and mm. understand, seeing them trying to wrestle with all these problems that they buried for so many years mm. and they're just buying Porsches and driving around, living a high life, playing in the Premier League. It's quite well, a well, look. Well, it must be difficult because you go, you know, they've had this career and then suddenly you retire and if you haven't got anything to fill that void... And probably you were surrounded by lots of people who you thought were your friends who now suddenly disappear because the gravy train has stopped, probably. It's it's gonna be hard, isn't it? You know. And you, you have that high emotional high every week of scoring goals or playing in a team that's successful and then suddenly that's gone. It's and you know, with some of these players, they would only really have been ordinary men in real life. They might have been painters, decorators, train drivers. And, mm. and you know, and they've got a you know got to have a career afterwards, and they haven't got anything in place to fill that. So it's yeah, you can see why a lot of them go off the rails. It's it's very I sad. Think I wonder if that, if all those guys also are that first generation of retired footballers who were still relatively speaking wealthy. Mm. You know, you, you you read about kind of players from the seventies and eighties who you know that you 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 do a great career, you you retire at thirty five, and you go and run a pub. Or you start, you open a sports shop, or you, you know, you, you have to, you have to find a profession. And yeah, you've got you know, a thirty-year working life ahead of you. Massively, and whereas I think that, that that bunch, you know, they, I guess that, I say that generation of players who who all, you know, would have been been there with when the big money started in the Premiership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, they they didn't have that need to find something to fill that gap. You know, because they could just drift and play golf and like. You know, sort of hang out and do do nothing, and it's as, as people are seeing right now in this lockdown situation. It's like it's not healthy. You know, it's not healthy to be sitting at home with nothing, nothing to do, and all the mental health and other problems that people are, are gonna, you know, are having right now. So yeah, it's it's, it's probably it'd be interesting to compare that lot to the people, their peers of maybe ten, twenty years before. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Well, Hendry said that he'd invested in property, and then all his investments went wrong, and then his house was repossessed, and then his mum's house was repossessed. And then he tried to kill himself, and but he had five children, and he was obviously in a dark, dark mm. place. But next thing they show them playing against San Marino in a friendly, and Henry scores a hat trick, and he looks like the happiest kid on earth. And it's really <laughs> strange to see, you know, how much joy football gave him. You know, that's a glimpse of it. Now, gentlemen, we have two things that we want to do. One is we want to look back at the 05-06 season, but do you think maybe it's time for the uh, the Tuesday Book Club? 
which is a new feature for the Tuesday Club podcast in the absence of football, uh, where, where I assign my participants the task of reading a book. And uh, last week we, we looked at Dennis Bergkamp's Stillness and Speed, and this week we're looking at Philippe O'Claire's uh, biography. It's published a few years ago now, after um, Henri had, had finished playing. About Thierry Henry, did you? How did you get on with it? Did you manage to get through it all? Well, Alan, you know my opinion about book reading. I mean, it's one word after another, <laughs> isn't it? It just goes on and on until you reach the last page. So <laughs> it's it was a struggle. Um, but I, I have started enjoying it. But he does. He's like you said. He's got no sense of humour. This bloke. Also, he mentioned that. Tigani, remember the uh, Tigani? He said, "Oh, he was a he, he was a miserable man, like a dour Yorkshireman." Well, I remember sitting next to him at Watford. Uh, we were John going, Tigana. Yeah, he was a lovely That's right. man. He sat in the in with the Arsenal fans at Watford, yeah, didn't he? Chewing you, on a toothpick. Yeah, you said to me, "You do know he's sitting next to you, don't you?" And you told me, and he was a charming man. He was very funny. He doesn't come across as a dour Yorkshireman to me. So that sort of threw a few doubts into the. Vidility of this book, but I mean it. Yeah, it's it's a page turner, but it, it, it's it's all a bit. This, as you say, there's no humour in it. Uh, there's a few things I have issues. He sort of mentions that uh, Henri set up this charity, and you know they came from a very poor area. There's a lot of districts in round Paris, like social housing estates, and they really are rough. I mean, I've seen a few. French cop programs to know that even the French police won't go there. So Henri was brought up in here, but he, they built a football pitch, and he said Henri never went back there to acknowledge it. Well, he, why would he want to go back there? You know, uh, that's it's why. difficult to if you're criticising someone for something that they haven't done, and that's quite yeah. hard. Mm. Yeah, but he has quite critical yeah. of things he had done. How did yeah. you feel about it, Ollie? I know you're a, a literary man. Are you, <laughs> are you a lover of a sports biography as a rule? No, no, not really. Um, no, I, I, I'm not a big. I, I'm not a huge biography uh, reader. I, I, I would prefer uh, fiction. But I, I did. You know, when I after I'd read it, I, I looked up the, the Royal Society of Authors' advice on how to write a biography, and they they give you five five rules. Mm-hmm. Number number one is don't do it for the money. <laughs> 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 and, and num- but number two, which I think is most relevant, is it's not about you. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you know, it, it really, it really felt like you know. I mean, probably culminating in the point where Eau Claire talks about going into Highbury and stealing Thierry's coat hanger. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just this. It's just if it, it, they, they obviously have this. Some it just felt like there'd been some terrible slight that had occurred between the two of them because he, he's, he's just obsessed, isn't he? It's, it's just a really, it's just a really odd treatment of, of, um, of, of a book. I just, I, you know, and he, he's very, very, very ready to criticise. It just feels very, very, just so negative. Mm. Um, it feels profoundly negative. It's very unlike the Burkamp book in, this, in which Burkamp cooperates fully and is, and is really, he's listed as the author. They did it in, in, in collaboration with an English and a Dutch uh, writer but they're not present in the book mm-hmm. it's Bergkamp's thoughts and when they want other people's thoughts they go and interview people who play with Bergkamp or against Bergkamp or manage Bergkamp and then they present the thoughts of those people to Bergkamp for him to respond to and it's fascinating this book is about Eau Claire's increasing bitterness mm. that Henri it becomes more and more remote as it becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger star and he seems and he keeps uh, three times or four times maybe in the book he refers to the people 
around Henri as star fuckers. He says they're star mm. fuckers. I think yeah. he uses this word, this odd word. Mm. Uh, uh, he refers to Henri's friends, his close circle as sycophants. Mm-hmm. And why, why are his friends necessarily sycophants? You're just not in the group, right? This is how, and mm. I'm sure this is not Eau Claire's intention, but this is what you end up thinking. You couldn't get near enough to him. And the, I did, the only time I laughed out loud in the whole book was when Eau Claire complained that Henri was forever changing his mobile <laughs> phone number. And I really thought, just, you really need to listen to this, what this is telling you, mate. If he's not giving you his mobile number, he doesn't want you to ring him up. Yeah, <laughs> that, that really crops up a lot in the book about the phones. I mean, there was mm. some, there is some interesting bits. I um, when he talks about the French setup, you know, with for the youth. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can see why they won the Euros in the World Cup, can't you? The French. I mean, they had that uh, academy. Was it Claire Fontaine? Is that Claire Fontaine? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and the whole thing is where the. Uh, head people there would talk to managers in the French league and go, listen, uh, could you rest this player or could mm-hmm. you arrange? And the French authorities did everything they could. And you could see why France did so well. Uh, the interesting so, thing about that, though, from Thierry Henry's point of view, is that that's when he finally really gets away from his father. Isn't oh, it? yeah. There's and his father, there. Tony, is the main character in the early part mm. of the book mm. where he's a kind of obsessive pushing and pushing and pushing for Thierry's football career that leads him to rub up against all of his coaches and managers and the people around him, that he's demanding, that he went onto the pitch to complain when he was, Henri was substituted in the game, that he was hypercritical of Henri, so Henri could never do en- enough right during a match, he was never good enough for his father. And you begin to see, you begin to, I, I found great sympathy for Henri, mm. who does have a reputation uh, for being a bit thin-skinned, but I mean, it's, when, when Eau Claire describes him as someone who, who likes who, who likes praise, but he doesn't like criticism or something like that, mm. as if anybody else is different from that. As if, <laughs> no. yeah. as if yeah, as if there are people who hate praise and love criticism, and I'm sure there are, but that's a slightly un- more unusual. His sensitivity well, to criticism was only matched by his desire to be praised, and would shape the personality of the serial record breaker to the extent that for us journalists, it would come to define him as a human being. Really, what are you talking about? He's just a boy in his 20s mm-hmm. playing football. He's not the Messiah. He's just a <laughs> lad, really, in a, in a way, when you become such an icon of the game and a national hero, there's a sense of almost of ownership of him. Mm. Like, he is ours, and we should be able to get to him, talk to him. He has to respond to us. So on the one hand, there are complaints early on about how he was very chatty with journalists and friendly and wanted to get to know them all, and they didn't like that. They kind of mm. they found that a reason to dislike him. And then later on, when he shut down completely after numerous betrayals by journalists being nice to him to his face and then writing terrible things about him, he withdraws from the press, take, changes his mobile phone number, doesn't want to talk to him, and then they attack him for that as well. And it really just feels like a, a kind of a... It's just a bit of an guy, assessment yeah. of fame yeah. where there's nothing that Henri could have done right, you know, and it's as if it all leads to this moment when he handles the ball against the Irish in the mm. in the World Cup playoff, and and the Ireland get knocked out, and it's as if he's trying to kind of wind the story back from that moment to try and work out why Henri is such a terrible person mm. when plainly he'd never he barely committed, <laughs> he'd never dived, he he, he was. He never handled the ball. He wasn't a cheat. And in that one moment when he did what he did then, the, the whole thing has to come 
crashing down. And by the end of it, I felt really defensive for Henri. Mm. Mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. as I say, he, he, had a, he had a tough life. I mean, yeah, I mean, the relationship with his father is interesting, but also it does suggest that his father must have made some sacrifices. He, he, he mentions the times when he barely had enough petrol in the car to get into, you know, to matches and stuff like that. But, yeah, clearly his father meant well, but probably a bit over the top. And also the Madrid scandal when they thought yeah. they'd signed Henri from uh, Monaco and that was all the skullduggery. So there's little interesting stuff there. But, yes, uh, Claire's relationship with Henri doesn't come across well. And it's, it's, it's so, I think it could have been so much more. You know, it could have been better. And I'd like some more detail in certain matches, which seems to have been overlooked, you know. He's got too busy with his own opinion. Henri's mm. willingness to talk to journalists was taken as proof of his self-regard. I mean, you can't have it always. <laughs> well, he can't, can't win, win can he? Later can't on, win. he moves to Barcelona. He goes to Barcelona, and in 2009, he plays in a Barcelona team that wins the treble. He win the, win the La Liga, the Copa del Rey, and the Champions League. It's never been done before. He's a regular in that team. He scores over 25 goals. And then the following year, he has one or two injury problems. He's 33 or whatever he is. And he doesn't play much. And by the time he gets to that playoff, he's lost his place in the French team and he started looking towards going to play for New York. And at this point, Eau Claire refers to him as the Barcelona reject. Yeah. But this is really... <laughs> Come on, mate. Why, why would you say that? You sound like a Spurs fan. Yeah, <laughs> probably you is. You claim to be yeah. an Arsenal fan. Why would you write in print? And time and time again, he wants to have his cake and eat it. So he talks about going, when Henri went to uh, Arsenal, and they signed, of course, by Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger gave him his debut as a 17-year-old at Monaco. Then he got fired. Then he went to Japan. And then he developed under Jean Tigana at Monaco. And then... Wenger's back in London with Arsenal and he's got a fantastic team with Patrick Vieira in the middle of it and Petit who used to play with Henri and he wants to get Henri for Arsenal and he wants to pair him with uh, Nicolas Anelka and then Henri ends up going to Juve the time goes by there, it doesn't work out he's playing with Zidane at Juve there's a lot in the book about Zidane and Henri never quite clicked oh, yeah. on the football pitch a lot, a lot about that that all seems to be Henri's fault <laughs> <laughs> really, really, they won the World Cup in the Euros and they got to another World Cup final. They didn't do too badly. Mm. But then he's, he says these quotes on Ria saying, when he went to Arsenal, I wanted not to disappoint Arsene, whose credibility was at stake, you know, in signing him, in, in signing him as a, someone who'd flopped at Juve. He's just won the double. I wanted to not disappoint Arsene. He wanted to do well for that reason. So then O'Claire says, wasn't he belittling the achievements of Wenger in 1998? And then in the next line, he goes, that would be too harsh a judgment. Oh, so that's yes. too harsh. A... But you've made that judgment. <laughs> you've made that judgment in print in your book. You've said that. You've typed that out. Yeah. And the fact that you're trying to then take it back with the other hand of the next sentence, you can't play this game, my friend. We have clocked what you're up to. And what the whole thing smacks of to me is ruinous envy mm -hmm. and at no point in the book is the raging envy and jealousy that people can feel when confronted by 
huge success, massive talent, incredible good looks. He, ter- mm. he talks at one point about his lithe physique and all the rest <laughs> of it. He's absolutely scathing about a Reebok commercial he did in 2007 with the glamorous actress Paz Vega. Paz Why Vega. would you take half a page in the, in the book to slag off a Reebok commercial? It, it, it feels to me, really, if you, you think... He, either he fancies him or Henri's got off with his wife. <laughs> <laughs> there's quite a good, uh, very good, Alan. There's quite a, quite a funny bit where he talks about Hampstead and all the play, all of the French players living in Hampstead and he goes on about like Thierry's house and his fish tank. And uh, you imagine it was composed on the tube back to like North, not not, not well, North Finchley, but, you know, <laughs> t- trundling up the Northern line to, to your little suburban house. You know, just, yeah, just real, real jealousy. But it, 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 it's ironic because it's definitely a book that you know where where it reveals more about the person who's written it than the person it's about it, it does feel um, like that it really does to me and i've i have met philippe O'Clair. I just, and i had dinner with him and uh, amy lawrence and one or two other arsenal fans up in the, in the italian up in blackstock road and and nice guy knowledgeable about football obviously but there's something about in my experience of football journalists they become heartbitten and they have this life of travelling of the same amount of airports, the same amount of hotels, the same amount of time away from their loved ones as the players, without any of the glory. And what took them into football writing in the first place was a love of football, and they lose that. And there's something kind of chip on the shoulder, hard-boiled about it. And then when they, he writes about the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, when the French team rebelled against Raymond Dominic, the coach, where they stormed off after a training session because Nicholas and Elka had been sent home for having a blazing row with Dominic and all the players were on the Nelka's side and they all got on the bus and refused to train. They were, this is, they were boycotting a training session as a protest about the treatment of a Nelka. You read throughout the book about the French Football Federation and the amount of money they spend on their accommodation and their expenses and flying in cases of expensive French wine and they live in like Louis Fourteenth or something and then these are their bosses... And their coach is an idiot. They can't stand him. Their best striker has been sent home for saying what they all think. And the captain, Evra, who's a good friend of Henri's, a close friend, he's had a row. Mm. And Henri is the senior man on the bus, but he's been sidelined from the team. And they all get on the bus together. And O'Claire lays into Henri to say he should have got off the bus and led them back to the training field. And I look at it and I think I totally sympathise with Henri staying on the coach with the players. There is team, Everett's his friend, he th- probably thinks the coach is an idiot as well. They're all fully aware that the Football Federation are just pissing money away and living on expenses. Everyone, they're all parasites, all around. They're surrounded by parasites. And you look at this book and there's this beautiful photo of Henri on the front. So handsome, looking at the camera. Great big picture of Henri, Thierry Henri on the top. And someone gave me this hardback as a present, seventeen ninety-nine. Not a penny of it goes to Thierry Henry. This mm. is, you're just writing hundreds of words, just really living off the back of him. Mm. If you can't if you haven't got anything nice to say, say nothing at all, my friend. And let us remember the legendary football player that Henri was. Here, here. Yep. <laughs> well, and the good thing is, after that, I don't have to. I don't have to read the rest of the book, do I? I'm giving that the elbow. How many pages away. have you read, Keith? <laughs> you have read some of it, though. So. Oh, I've, no, I've got, oh no, I have. I've read some of it, and as I say, it's 
there was a lot of interesting points in there, but it, what Alan just said, it's, it's too much bitterness. And, you know, you can understand a little bit, but you can't have this chapter after chapter after chapter. But uh, I'm glad, listen, with the book club thing, I am on board, but uh, I'm, I've got to refer to last week. I thought I tuned into the Late Show with, uh, what was it? <laughs> Wall Street Steve or something? something. Wall Street Steve. Oh, yeah. Wall, Wall, <laughs> Cold, oh, Cold, Cold, War, Cold War Steve. Cold War Steve. Yeah, yeah he, he probably will all, be on Wall We're all fans of Cold War Steve, Steve. now. Mind you, I looked up some of it up. Actually, it's quite good. Cause, uh, I'd, like to go good. To an, I'd like to go to an exhibition because it was cheerful. It's nothing worse than going to an old gallery and coming out bleeding miserable, is there? I mean, it, there's, there's one more thing. Before I forget, uh, there's a quote in the in this in this Henri book from Arsene Wenger. Hmm. I mean, so often in life, something I'm so looking forward to Wenger's own book uh, yeah, coming yeah, out yeah. in October. Oh, um, yeah. If he's able to get his philosophy of life, his ideas, uh, he really will be a valuable uh, document. He said of Henri, Thierry is a sensitive guy, and I like that, but sensitivity cuts both ways. In this milieu, people make you pay a heavy price for your vulnerability. And he said that to Eau Claire quite early on in Henri's career. In this milieu, people make you pay a heavy price for your vulnerability. And it rang true when I read it. It rang true about Henri. It rang true about the treatment of Henri in this book, mm. about the treatment of Henri in the French press after the 2010 World Cup. It rang true about the, all the stories those ex-players were telling on that. Harry Redknapp's Euros travel. People make you pay a heavy price for your vulnerability. You know? mm. And it's, I wrote at the top of this page, Arsene knows. That's why I wrote <laughs> That is so astute, so yeah. profound, so insightful, so typical of Arsene Wenger. There's a thing about him that I love more than anything, never apart from his recruitment of players and giving them the freedom to play like children and wanting to always attack and signing Thomas Rizitsky when really we needed a centre-half. You know, that, <laughs> that's <laughs> Arsene. He wants to be on the brink. He wants to take a risk. He wants to entertain the crowd. And he understands the vulnerability of these men, many of whom have had, mm. so in many cases, quite difficult childhoods. And mm. I tell you, with, about, with uh, talking about Arsene's book, though, I was discussing this with a friend and we were saying maybe the couple of chapters he might want to leave out is where he might say, I could have signed Messi, I could have signed Ronaldo, I could have signed... <laughs> but I just decided to buy Jovino instead. And oh. if I was like Arsene's manager, I'd be going, now, nah, i tell you what, Arsene, the book is great, but let's not put that chapter in, shall we? Let's just leave out, <laughs> I could yeah. have bought. Don't... I nearly signed him, but I thought, no, nah, Messi... Mm. No, I went for Park Chu Young instead. Yeah, because <laughs> that would be the bit where you're reading it and suddenly the book gets thrown against the wall. <laughs> I want to know if he signed Park Chu Young just to sell... No, that was Gazidis. Just to sell shirts in Asia. Yeah, that was that, that was what that, they said at the time. That was what, Ivan. What I'm, it's going to be. I mean, I think I think the the the, the page in the index marked Gazidis Ivan. Is going to be... <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, it's going to be referred to quite quickly when I get that book. Oh, yeah. yeah, Ivan the Terrible. Well, it divides yeah. into two halves, doesn't it? And rather like know, Henri, actually, it. it divides into into. David Dean and post-David Dean. Mm. And Henri's decision to leave Arsenal for Barcelona came about, he says, because David Dean was ousted. And that if David Dean had stayed, Thierry might have, might have stayed. 
Thierry by then was the captain and was such a big presence in the dressing room. It reminds me a little bit of watching Michael Jordan in The Last Dance, where he's someone who's now really hardened, played many years, feeling a lot of aches and pains, doesn't need, doesn't want to really have to cajole anyone along, just going to set a standard and say, you lot are going to have to keep up with this because mm. if you don't, we ain't going to win anything. And this is the standard. And Van Persie said about Henri, he could really lay into you if you gave him a bad pass, he'd give you that look. Oh, you can see and, it. And, and, that, and that, you know, he talks about one or two of the younger players when Henri was a captain being afraid to speak to him. He wasn't that sort of arm around the shoulder captain. He wanted to do well, but... So there was talk about when he left for Barca and he had all that success in the 2009 season with Barcelona, that maybe Arsenal maybe were better for it because they were, it gave, really made space for a new community of players to come through. But holy smoke, you never know, will you? You never know if he'd mm. stuck around, if he'd been there for the 2008 season when, when we had those injuries to Van Persie and Eduardo, if he'd had Henri to play 15 games... <laughs> Yeah, oh, that season instead of playing for Barcelona, my God! I mean, with that if team, buts, if that buts. team should have won more European trophies. I mean, you mentioned last week about the Valencia game. What you know when that guy, the away game. What you didn't mention was is that Wiltord had an opportunity before Valencia scored to kick that ball right down the end, but instead he let it go out for a throw in, and from the throw in they got Valencia scored. And that was a mm. cru crucial moment in the game. He really had the opportunity. He could have just kicked it down the other end of the pitch, but he tried to play the ball out. It went off for a throw in, and you know. But we should have we should have won more more trophies, especially with Henri in the team. But you know when he came back, that was that fantastic moment against Leeds. I wish oh, why couldn't we have kept him? Because we might have won the <laughs> FA Cup under. We just could have kept him. Just gone to, uh, yeah. gone, gone to the, the American club and go, listen, we'll, we'll give you a shed load of money. We'll, just, we'll have him back. What a moment that goal was, though, oh. when, he, when he got that ball. He looked at Alex Song and he, Alex, he basically said to Alex Song, now, and Alex Song found him with the pass. And it, 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 the first touch, he kind of knocks it out sideways, doesn't he, and then tees himself mm. up. One, oh, what a Song. Henri, chance, go! Was the reaction of him and, and that the crowd? You thought we'd won the league on that. That was like when you, it was amazing. Now this week, lads, we're, the, the season we're going to before we uh, wrap this up today, the, we're going to look back at the 2005-2006 season, which really you feel like could be quite a lengthy podcast all by itself. But one thing I forgot from that game, and uh, I like to do the, the captain's log, and uh, the captain of Arsenal that season uh, was Thierry Henry, and he. Um, he was also the Footballer of the Year that season, the Football Writers Footballer of the Year in 2006, as he had been in 2004 and 2003, the only player, the first player to win it three times in a row. But he's talk this is the, the match day programme from the Wigan game, not the Wigan game in the League Cup where we lost on away goals and got knocked out of the semi-final, which is quite a painful <laughs> evening that went on forever. because it went. <laughs> it's the Wigan game on the last day where Henri scored a hat-trick 
and uh, all the Spurs, we sang lasagna, didn't we, for about two years <laughs> after that, because oh, Spurs yeah. had food poisoning. But we, there was a bit of bitterness towards Spurs. I mean, of course, there always is anyway, because, I mean, partly because of the paganism. But also, um, <laughs> Mike, if you remember this, this is Henri's notes. Uh, our last home game was controversial. Uh, firstly, I want to say Tottenham played well, very well. They probably should have scored before they did. Now, I know it's not a rule that the game has to stop in a situation like we had for the goal, but I think if you respect each other, you should stop. And then I remembered it, right? As I was reading it, I remembered it. We had a player down injured and they carried on playing. Michael Carrick said to me he couldn't see Ibuwe on the ground, and I want to believe him, but considering where he was standing, like I say... (laughs) I want to believe it. So, <laughs> quite a nice, nice. programme, notes nice. from Thierry. Uh, and he came off the bench that day and uh, and equalised and we got a one-all draw against Spurs and then the rest of the programme notes are about talking about going to Paris for that terrible disappointment. But mm-hmm. that season was the last at Highbury and, um, and we played in a cherry red yeah. kit and it was quite a strange feeling all round, wasn't it? Yeah, someone decided that uh, they'd allegedly found a photograph in the Arsenal Museum saying that that, that was our, one of our first kits we played in. The fact that the photograph looks like it had been through a Photoshop machine, it's neither here nor there. <laughs> so for whatever reason, we decided to play, not in our traditional red and white, but that, uh, what would you call it, claret? I don't know. Yeah. yeah Maroon. So, I mean, it's quite a nice kit. It I was all right, it. but, you know, it's not red and white. It wasn't Arsenal, though, was it? No, so it felt strange, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that season, I I do remember, I think one of the best nil nils I've ever seen is when we played Madrid. Uh, was it in this quarterfinal? Oh, my word. That was, that was an unbelievable that game. That was in the round of 16. Uh, we played uh, Real Madrid... And we'd beaten them in the first leg, hadn't yeah. we? 21st of February. I was in Laos. <laughs> of course Katie you were. Katie and I went to Thailand and Laos on holiday. And I was sitting in a hotel room at three o'clock in the morning in Laos with the sand down. I always wanted to go to the Bernabeu. I'd never be, never been there. Would have. It's the one real game that really I would love to have been at. But I watched it. I was able to watch it all at least. And Thierry Henry scored a wonderful winning goal. And we beat them one nil. Should have been three because we had some excellent chances that night. We were all over them. We could have easily scored two or three more. We played very well. They had a bit of a Galacticos thing on the go, didn't well, they? And, Beckham uh, and David Beckham was part of that. And the and the return game happened the day after. My fortieth uh, birthday, and um, I don't know if you remember the party for my fortieth birthday, but it's a miracle we got ourselves <laughs> to Highbury for this match. <laughs> 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 Holy smoke, that was a good yeah. evening. Yeah, um, uh, yeah the, the Matt and Matt bar, the long, Matt and Matt on Upper Street. Where are they now? I really actually where don't know Matt where they Matt? are now. But if they, if anyone knows Matt and Matt, who used to run the bar, Matt and Matt's on Upper Street. Uh, give give them our love. Wonderful people. Mm. Um, and we drew nil-nil. And Jens Lehmann made a save. Do you remember that? Yeah, right. I think it yeah, towards the end. But also, I think in the final minute, there, the Real Madrid keeper came came up. There was a corner. And then I think Perez, you know, was hoping he was going to kick it into their goal, but it didn't. Have, it was just so tense, but it was an ex- exciting game of football. Uh, but it was nil-nil, but it was a flowing match. Uh, and it was a great game, you know. They were the real deal. Oh, Having them in the so. stadium, in that famous old stadium. Yeah. 
mm. and it, with really everything on the line. And we had a good, good side. We had a young defence because they had injuries, didn't we? And mm. Sol Campbell and Ashley Cole were probably the two of the best defenders in the world at that time. And they were both out injured. And actually, Sol was having a bit of trouble, wasn't he? Coming towards the end of his time, really, with yeah, Arsenal. Yeah, they came back for the final, but Philippe Senderos, we had Mattia Flamini playing Flamini, left back yeah. for loads of games. <laughs> oh, Nigel right, yeah. Flamini, yeah. Nigel Flamini, <laughs> Nigel Flamini, 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 da 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 Flamini. That's what I remember from that season. <laughs> then the next round we played Juventus, and I don't know if you remember this, but of course Patrick Vieira yes. has left for Juventus. Mm. So he turns up in that magnificent kit they have. I do like in Italy that they don't change their kit. It's just the same. And and he turned mm. up. He, everyone the year before had started playing a three in midfield and he was getting outnumbered. And uh, Wenger took 13 mil for him and just shoved him out the door, really. I don't even know if he really wanted to go, but there he, off, off he went. Do you and think that was a mistake? Did we get rid of uh, Vieira too soon? I don't know, really. I can't. It's difficult because he he wanted to play Sesk, didn't he? Yeah. Um, Vieira wasn't minded to just kind of sit in front of the back four and let Sesk be a playmaker. Mm. He was always all over the pitch, bounding around. He was a player who needed a minder, who needed a coverer, and that's why it worked so well with him and Petit, and then was so yeah. well with, particularly with him and Gilberto Silva, because Gilberto yeah. Silva provided a platform for Vieira to rampage around the Premier League. But it didn't really dovetail with Sesk, and then. He came back and Seth scored in that game. Yes, he did. And they had a big... He tackled him as well. Do you remember? There was, I can't remember if it was the leg at Highbury or the other one. But And I remember yeah. Perez tackling Vieira and that was unbelievable. You know. And then we went there and I went to the away leg in Juve and they kept us in the ground for two hours afterwards. After goalless draw. Then we played Villarreal. We beat them at home 1-0 with a goal from Cola Toure. And then we have the away leg... And uh, Keith, you would not come and watch it in my house. No, because, <laughs> as we've said before, the track record of watching any game in your house is pitiful. And I was not going to take the chance. So I actually drove round. I was about 300 yards from your house. And I turned on the radio and it said Villarreal got a pen. Oh, and I turned it on. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I'm thinking... Yes. And that's why I pulled the car over, because I thought, the closer I was getting to your house, suddenly they get a penalty. <laughs> so I yeah. stopped the car. Oh, no, you've triggered a penalty just by being near yeah, the house. Yeah, 300 yard distance. <laughs> it's a penalty. You see, that's it, you see. I'd have driven another yard closer, they would have scored that penalty. You know, but... Luck. Well, of course, famously, Raquel May, who was their top player, one of the best creative oh. midfielders in the world at the time, had his penalty saved by Jens Lehmann. And there was a lot, there'd been a lot of talk on this podcast in recent weeks about Dennis Bergkamp having a penalty saved by Peter Schmeichel and possibly we may have won the double in 99, but for that moment... Mm. And then there we were with our own last-minute penalty save to break the hearts of Villarreal. Um, so that was, you know, somehow maybe some things balance out. Um, we, um, the next game... No, we had, that was right. In between the two Villarreal games was the game where we played Tottenham, where we had the one-all draw and we had all the controversy about them playing and we, and we had a man down. I think Martin Yol squared up to Arsene and it was all a bit ugly. yeah. yeah. Then we beat. Then we played Villarreal, got a nil-nil, and then a few days after that we went to Sunderland away, 
And again, this is a game that I went last to. Last game of the season, was oh, it? We were close to the last game. There's a couple more left. Um, Katie and I had met the year before, and I was up in the northeast with her, and I went to Sunderland, and that was the game where Diaby had his ankle yes. snapped. Yeah, bad. Oh. And that was a bad, bad day. And Diaby possibly would have played in the Champions League final. He would have been out in Paris with the squad. He, he was yeah, an outside sure. chance. Because mm. he was but showing he would have played. Yeah. In the in the made the French squad for the World Cup in in the summer. Um, he did play subsequently in the World Cup in 2010 in that terrible tournament they had. By the way, the when um, France lost to South Africa in 2010, their back four was Sanya, I think it was Sanya, Squalacci, Sylvester, and Clichy. So you can see where they started to <laughs> go wrong. <laughs> 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 so then we all go to Paris and Keith you will go to Paris with your where did you have your ticket? in my boot <laughs> <laughs> I'd done a test run on an old ticket stub just to make sure it wasn't going to get damaged and because uh, I had no I wanted to have a terrible fear of losing it I just didn't want to lose that ticket you know and no. uh, do you know what how, what would it have been like if we'd have won that final? We were 13 minutes away, man. 13 minutes. It's just... I never thought it would happen until I, I'd started to think it was going to happen about 14 minutes from the end. I really had just thought we might do, do this. this. Yeah. Mm. They had 72% possession and they had some of the best players, not just in the world, but of all time mm. playing. You know, Samuel <laughs> Eto'o and... And Ronaldinho, holy smoke, they were a good football team. But <laughs> to this day, I don't know. We were really, there was some, we had something about us. We had a real yeah. team spirit yeah. and a mentality. But the tragedy of the red card was that Henri was up front on his own. And he speaks about it. He's quoted to talk about it in this Eau Claire book. They had a chance late on. He said he was just too tired. He couldn't. Yeah. He said I had nothing left in my socks. Yeah. And I couldn't get to that one. Oh. But he said I had another, he had a chance earlier that I can't remember because I've uh, never watched that I, game I, again. I, and no, I, I never will. I know the chance because he'd scored one at home against the Villa and it's more or less mm. exactly the same. He's on through where he'd normally curl it round a keeper into the far corner and it it didn't happen. But obviously tiredness was a factor. But he could have yeah, well, he, he he made it 2 he, he still beats himself yeah. up that he should have put that in the net. Yeah. Because at 2 0, that would have it would have been game over. We could have taken Henri off, maybe put another defensive sub on. I mean, had we used all yeah. that? So many subplots because Cesc yeah. Fabregas was kept on. Yeah. And he was 18 years old and he was bossing our midfield even at that age. But he was an ex youth player. They weren't frightened of him or bothered about mm. him. Perez was taken off in Paris. Yeah. He was heartbroken. Should have kept. Yeah. Would you, Dennis yeah. Bergkamp was on the bench. It was his last so, game yeah. as an Arsenal player's last game as a player. And he was hoping to get on, of course, and he had to watch this thing unfold. And the whole, the way it panned out, the fact that, that one of their goals was offside, and oh. if they'd had VAR, it wouldn't have been allowed. I've never seen it. the possibility yeah. that maybe the ref blew up too quickly when Lehman fouled. Was it Etu he fouled or Ronaldinho? Yeah, he did. Foul uh, yeah. He blew up too quickly because the ball bounced loose, and they stuck it in the net. Mm. He could have given a goal just to given the goal and and let it go. Mm. And we, you know, we'd have been one down, eleven v eleven. So many. Yeah. So many little stories. It's, it's that still, it's still there. I mean, I, you know, much as I remember the awful trudging through the pouring rain to the tube station. I mean, it, it was, it was definitely when when Campbell scored. It was, it was genuinely one of the most amazing moments of my life. Mm. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know, because I don't think I think I was I was with Tayo and Damien and Alistair. I think you guys were a bit further down 
in our um down, down from us and um you know when he scored it was just like this this moment this like com- complete like collective madness <laughs> you yes. know i just remember just being in this thing and it's well, it's you, like you think it's going to be your you think we was going to do it because you think we're down to 10 men and yet we've gone one nil up and you're thinking well this is one nil to the arsenal we're going to do them and then but then the referee didn't do us any favors after that did he i mean it was just they, there was lots of niggly fouls that Barcelona never seemed to get punished for. And but the difference was in the end, though, wasn't it, that they had 11. Yeah. And yeah. then they're able to change a player and they're able to bring on Henrik Larsson. Mm, that which was we, the game we'd, changer. We'd lost Perez. Yeah. We didn't have him. We weren't able to bring on Bergkamp. Mm, no. We no. weren't able to do anything. We were totally hamstrung by the red card. Layman's rush of blood. It was heartbreaking it's something mm. you know Lehman was a wonderful keeper in the Invincibles team but he, he had that rush of blood in him didn't mm. he? he pushed over mm. Robbie yeah. Keane and gave away yeah. a penalty in 2004 mm. it, can you handle it in a big game but then in 2005 he, he saved Paul Scholes penalty in the shootout he saved Raquel Me's penalty we wouldn't have been there without him, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. possibly saving that penalty because yeah. if Villarreal had mm. equalised and then we play extra time on their pitch. Mm. Oh, no, no. Who's to say <clears throat> we could have won, you know? Mm. So, so many little subplots. It really was a hard... That was a hard one. ...hard one to take because um, we felt like we never really... I know that Wenger felt like he never really had a chance with his best side out mm. to take them on and... Uh, Anyway, that was that was the oh five oh six season. In many ways, it was one of the great seasons, but uh, so many things to remember. And but it was the beginning. It was the end of everything, really. And wh- whether we were the right, whether it was right to leave Highbury or not, pe- pe- people like us are hugely nostalgic about Highbury and wonder what might have been if we'd just bitten a bullet, if we'd known what broadcasting money was going to come in. Would would it have been worth investing in the Emirates? But here we are. This is all so long ago. It's fourteen <laughs> years ago. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just nostalgia. It's misty-eyed nostalgia, mm. which is what we've uh, what we've uh, delivered for you today, listener. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel yeah. that we could still. Well, I think under Mikhail, we will get you know a golden era again. I see. There's a there's a manager there that could uh, make us great again. Really I agree. I really can't wait to see him yeah. make his mark on the team. And there's a high energy about him. Although there was a game, wasn't there, where he had he changed his mind about substitution three times. He got three players stripped off and made them sit down again. <laughs> he might need to calm it a little bit. But, they're, they're, but he, it's, he loves it's, Arsenal, doesn't he? I mean, he really he does have the feel for the club that Henri yeah. talks about. But he's got that stare that all good managers have, that that look of if, if he was to say, listen, I'd like you to jump uh, out the window, please, and you go, yeah, OK, Mick, I'll do that. There's a moment in the book, I've got a couple of quotes from the, from the Eau Claire book. Uh, one is, they're talking about English fans, and we talked about last week about Unai Emery saying the thing, he, the thing he loved about the Premier League and about England was the love of the fans for their club, that they don't boo and jeer their own team immediately, that they do, they love their club, and their club's important to them. And Vieira said to O'Claire once, when I hear my name being <laughs> sung in the stands, I get a hard-on. Which was... <laughs> <laughs> which quite a thought when you see some of the tackles he made. Yeah. And... <laughs> and Thierry Henry said about um, playing for Arsenal and also just playing in England, 
There is a communion between players and public which doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. It's quite interesting from hearing from people who've mm. been around other leagues and that there is something about playing in England which is special, which is gratifying. I, th- I think so. I mean, you know, Terry was at Monaco where you know you're lucky if you get a couple of thousand there and yet you've got the best players... Yeah around Europe playing for a team like Monaco and yet you're lucky yeah. if you get... Well, there's tax breaks on the wages, uh, well, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, uh, no, I think British fans... I mean, also we take away fans. It's something you don't get that much... Probably in Germany you do, but certainly you wouldn't get it in Spain, you know. I mean, that's where they could talk about El Clasico. It's not like there's 6,000 Barcelonas at Real Madrid, are they? There's no fans there. You hate El Clasico. Yes, I do. I do. I want it banned. <laughs> No more. El Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> yep. uh, next week's book club, I think I'm going to do Eddie Hapgood's autobiography, which is about 150 pages. Sorry, Chris. Oh, <laughs> so unfair. See you. Bye. bye. Cheers. Bye.